Um, we're doing something a little bit different today. We're, we're talking about um, uh, the Reformation, and we're talking about Martin Luther. And uh, it's not our typical way of uh, going through the, the Word of God. We're just taking a, a step away from that just for this particular Sunday. Uh, and I want us to, to um, concentrate our thinking on the Reformation. If the Lord wills, and I'm able to be here for a little while yet, uh, I want to take each uh, last Sunday of uh, October, we did it a couple of years ago and I just missed last year, to just talk about the Reformation and some of the people involved and some of the things that were accomplished um, for the kingdom of God through that period of time. Um, history matters. Biblical history matters. Um, secular history matters. Um, church history matters. And so uh, we have a few minutes today to look at um, Martin Luther. We'll be looking at a few texts along the way, but most of it will just be an account of, of Luther and his life. Uh, on this day, 493 years ago, a monk with a mallet in hand nailed to the church door in Wittenberg a list of 95 theses that he hoped would cause debate to take place amongst the church in that day. It was no accident that Luther did this on October the 31st, 1517. It was All Hallows' Eve, the day before All Saints' Day. On that day, pilgrims would file past relics in the church and would appeal to the excess merits of those saints in the hopes of pleasing the righteous demands of God. One author who I've been reading said on that, that those who viewed these relics on the designated day and made the stipulated contributions could receive from the Pope indulgences for the reduction of purgatory either for themselves or for others. In one particular place, they had over 19,000 relics, which could be anything from a tooth um, of a saint to a piece of straw that was in the manger to a thorn that was in Jesus' crown. And in one particular place, they had over 19,000 of these relics. And the sum total of the days that you could um, release yourself from purgatory was 1,902,202 years and 270 days. And so on that particular day, on All Saints Day, people would go past these relics in the hopes of gaining, appealing to their excess merits, making a contribution to the church, and thereby minimizing their time in purgatory or a loved one's time in purgatory. But what, what was it about this time that bothered Luther? Uh, on the one hand, Luther's studies and teaching were leading him in a different direction in a very different direction from the conclusions of the church at that time. On the other hand, he was bothered by these notions of indulgences, and I'll say a little bit more about them in a second, but he was bothered by um, the sale of indulgences and the impact that they were having on the church. Pope Leo X at that time, his coffers were becoming low for any number of reasons, one of which he had such a great love for art. And uh, they were at that time restoring the, the Sistine Chapel, and that was where Michelangelo did his painting. And of course, artists like Michelangelo don't come cheap. And so they needed to pay Michelangelo as well as fill their coffers. Also at that time, Albert of Mans wanted to have a third bishopric. And the money and the power that went through them. He had already purchased two. He had more than he was allowed. But he wanted this third one because there was a great deal of revenue that would come into somebody who had one of these bishoprics. And so he had struck a deal with um, Leo X that he would be able to buy this third one for 10,000 ducats. And I have no idea. I should have done some research about what the equivalent of that is today. But it's a large sum of money. 
And now he was set. He had his third bishopric, but he didn't have cash in hand to pay for it. All he had was land, and he couldn't liquidate it, so he needed to come up with cash in order to pay for this third position and title that he had now arranged a deal for. Enter the enterprising and ever-resourceful Jonathan Tetzel. Jonathan Tetzel had devised a scheme involving indulgences. And indulgences were ways that you could pay money to buy pardons for sin. And by the time of Luther, one could simply buy an indulgence for sin directly from the church. In other words, repentance could be bought. It was this practice that Tetzel seized upon to fill the coffers of Albert and, in fact, to fill the coffers of the Pope. And Tetzel set about a campaign so that he might sell these indulgences to the people. And and in Wittenberg, they had actually been granted special indulgences that could um, forgive past sins, present sins, and also future sins. And he had a marketing campaign that he had built up that he would go around and uh, he would um, work on people's consciences. And he, he he could say something like this, pity us. He's talking about people in purgatory. Pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son and the mother to her daughter, We bore you, nourished you, brought you up, left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that, you, that now you are not willing for so little to set us free. Will you, not, will you let us lie here in the flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you are able to release them, for as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so he went around the land selling indulgences. Once word got out that these indulgences were available, people were flocking to buy them. And Luther couldn't take it any longer. And so he posted his 95 theses in hope, among other things, to stir a debate about whether or not um, repentance can be bought. In thesis number 62, Luther got to the heart of the matter when he said, The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. It would be some time before Luther would arrive at a crystal clear expression of the gospel and of the doctrine of justification by faith. But when he nailed those 95 theses to the church door, it singled a breach in the walls of the dam, and the floods would soon be let out. While this was the immediate concern of Luther, he got far more than he bargained for. Because in nailing those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, he unleashed a reformation that would sweep across Germany, across Europe, and eventually across the entire world. And the world would never be the same. Luther's act gave birth to a Protestant church, which is now uh, around 600 million strong. And few, if any men, one wrote, have changed the course of history like Martin Luther. But the Reformation is much broader than a single particular day. In fact, the Reformation that started with Martin Luther spread out over more than two centuries and involved numerous men and women from a variety of nations. The word Reformation means to form again or to revive or to mold anew. And all these reformers did not see themselves as inventors or as discoverers or as creators 
Instead, they saw their efforts as something of a rediscovery, of finding something that has been lost, of finding something that has been concealed or covered over. They weren't inventing anything from scratch, but were reviving what had become dead and lost. And they looked back then into the Bible. They looked back into the apostolic era and the early church fathers to find a pattern of the gospel and to call the church back to its roots. It was a time of great challenge for those who longed to be true to the word of God. They debated and they wrote. They preached and they prayed. They were imprisoned and many gave their lives to fight this battle. The reformers saw nothing less than the very gospel at stake. A couple years ago, we looked at the heart of the theological center of the Reformation, which was sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone, the authority of scripture alone. We looked at sola uh, fide and sola gratiae, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not by works that we come to Christ. We come empty-handed. We looked at sola Christus, that there is no other mediator, there is no other way to the Father but through Christ. And we looked at sola gloria, or sola de gloria, which means everything, everywhere, every time, glory belongs to God. That was the heart of Reformation theology. And the church cannot afford to forget the lessons of the Reformation and the utter supremacy of the gospel. It is so easy for us to lose our grip on the gospel. And it's so easy for us to say, well, doctrine really doesn't matter. It's so easy for us to set aside Christ as the only way to the Father. And I will argue, and I'm seeing it increasingly as something that we need to fight for, is we need to call the church back to the Scripture. We need to call the church back to the great doctrines that it has stood on for thousands of years. I was chatting with Barbara Judd last week, and as we were talking, she was telling about what they're going through in, in, in Sunday school and the curriculum that they're looking at. And they've got a curriculum that basically starts in Genesis, and it's going to work its way uh, through the Bible. And Barbara was saying how, 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 how she realizes how even our own kids don't know some of those stories in the Bible. We need to get back to the Scriptures. We need to get back to the authority of the Word of God. Some of you may have been here about two years ago when Peter Jones came and did a weekend with us. It was just an amazing weekend. And he talked about how, how um, New Age, how Gnosticism, how this new spirituality is taking over literally the world. And this last week, he sent out his truth exchange, which I was looking at and reading at. And he was talking in there how, how mystical spirituality, not Scripture, has become the norm for Christian faith. What I feel, what I experience, what I get from this religion, what I get from that book, what I get from this Eastern practice, what I get from that Christian practice. It is mystical spirituality, not Scripture, that has become the norm for Christian faith. I read uh, about two years ago a book by Phyllis Tickle, and it's one of the most disastrous books I have ever written about a lady who was at the front forefront of the emergent church. And in it, uh, again, uh, uh, um, Peter Jones quotes her, and he says, she, uh, the emergent historian Phyllis Tickle gets beyond belief systems by declaring that the age of sola scriptura is over. And that the age of sola spiritus has arrived. In other words, we have replaced the authority of the word of God with my experience. With your experience. 
That is a bold declaration. The age of sola scriptura is over. It is now the age of sola spiritus. He also quotes a pastor from Dallas area who said, I cannot say exactly what we believe, except that experience is a higher authority than scripture. I do not believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe Jesus is. Scripture has no hierarchy over other books. It is inspiring the way quantum physics, uh, 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 the way a quantum physics books is. That is staggering stuff. And loved ones, we find that assault on the authority of the word of God increasing in the books that you read, in the television shows that you watch, and in the churches that are flourishing even around North America. So why are we giving another Sunday to the Reformation? Why again this year setting aside your time and my time to reflect on the Reformation? Well, I think because we can learn from it. Because we can learn from it specifically what was the cost of the treasure of the gospel. That we need to never lose sight of what we have in the word of God. The treasure of the gospel. And we can also need to be reminded how easily we can lose sight of its value. How easily the church can wander away from its foundation and its roots in the Bible to do many good things, but we have lost sight of our sole authority, which is the Word of God. John Piper recounts how all over Germany, I've never been to Germany, so I'm taking his word for it. Some of you may have been. But all over Germany, on church steeples, you will find swans portrayed. And also, um, in many of the artistic works of uh, works on Martin Luther, paintings of Martin Luther, he is portrayed with swans' feet. Think, well, why swans on a temple? Why swans' feet on Martin Luther? Well, the reason goes back a century before Martin Luther. John Huss, who died in 1415, a hundred years before Luther nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door, John Huss was a professor and later a president at the University of Prague. He was born from peasant stock and preached in the common language instead of Latin. That was one strike against him. Secondly, he translated the New Testament into Czech. That was two strikes against him. You did not put the Bible in the everyday common language of the people. And he spoke out against abuses at that time that were taking place in the Catholic Church. In 1412, a papal bull was issued against Huss and his followers. Anyone could kill the Czech on sight. And those who gave him food, food and shelter would suffer the same fate. When three of Huss's followers spoke publicly against the practice of selling indulgences, they were captured and beheaded. In December 1414, Huss himself was arrested and kept in prison until March 1415, when he, he was, and he was kept in chains and brutally tortured for his views, which anticipated the Reformation by a hundred years. On July 6, 1415, Huss was burned at the stake along with his books. One tradition says that in his cell, just before his death, Huss wrote, Today you are burning a goose which is the meaning of his name in Czech. Today you are burning a goose. However, a hundred years from now, you will be able to hear a swan sing. You will not burn it. You will have to listen to it. Martin Luther boldly saw himself as a fulfillment of this prophecy and wrote in 1531, John Huss prophesied of me 
when he wrote from his prison in Bohemia, they will now roast a goose, but after a hundred years they will hear a swan, a swan sing. They will have to tolerate him, and so it shall continue if it pleases God. As John Piper's series of his book says, the swans are not silent. There continues to be men and women who proclaim the treasures of the gospel. Searching for one whose heart is wholly his. One of my favorite verses in, in the Old Testament, and I, I sure enjoy when I come to Second Chronicles because I get refreshed in it again, is the verse in uh, 16, uh, verse 9, where it says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the earth to give strong support to those his heart, whose hearts are wholly his. As we think about Martin Luther, Martin Luther was not perfect. And I have had a number of people remind me of that over this last week. But he was, like us, human. We all have our faults and our shortcomings. We all sin, sometimes greatly. But just as imperfect characters of the Bible were used by God to accomplish his purposes, so imperfect men like Martin Luther were used by God to accomplish his purposes. Martin Luther was born on November 10th, 1546. His father worked and sacrificed so that his son would receive the best education of the day and become a lawyer although this was never the leaning of Martin Luther's heart. At 17, in one year, Luther earned his B.A. In another three years, he earned his master's in law, but this was not to be his life's vocation. Shortly after receiving his master's in law, he was making a trip back to visit his mom and dad, and he got caught up in a terribly violent thunderstorm that freaked him out. He took this to be the judgment of God upon him. And so he cried out to the only mediator that he knew at that time, which was Saint Anne, the patron saint of minors, which was his father. And he cried out, and this should be a warning to us who sometimes make these declarations in time of great distress. He cried out, Saint Anne, help me, and if you do, I will become a monk. He so feared for his soul, and he did not know how to find safety in the gospel that he appealed to St. Anne. Well, 15 days later, on July 17, 1505, he knocked at the gate of the Augustinian Hermitus and asked the prior to accept him into the order, to the great dismay of his parents. Luther would later say, call this a, fra a fragrant sin that he had committed in doing that. He said it was a sin because it was made against his father's wishes and out of fear. He later added, though, but how much good the merciful Lord has allowed to come of it. John Piper, in his series, The Swans Are Not Silent, makes a, just a beautiful pastoral remark here when he writes, We see this kind of merciful providence over and over again in the history of the church. It should protect us from the paralyzing effects of bad decisions in our past. God is not hindered, hindered in his sovereign designs from leading us, as he did Luther, out of blunders, into fruitful lives of joy. Such an encouragement, that word is. Luther now studied a different subject. He earned a Bachelor of Theology in 1508. He became a Doctor of Theology in 1512. And it was during this time that he entered into, or his inner spiritual struggle just began to, to, to finally culminate. And in fact, I would say, probably from what I've read, that it exceeded the intensity of the violent thunderstorm that he caught himself in. In a monastery, he said, I did not think about women, money, or possessions. 
Instead, my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow his grace on me, for I had strayed from faith and could not, could not but imagine that I had angered God, whom I, in turn, had to appease by doing good works. This weighed heavily on him. He said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. He was crushed by the weight of his sin. Luther was 21 years old when he became a monk, and it would be 20 years before he would marry his wife, Katrina von Bora, on June 13, 1525, and escaped none. Luther was 45, she was 26 when they got married, and she escaped with 12 other nuns from a monastery in a fish barrels. They, had, they took barrels of fish into the monastery, and then they stuffed these 12 nuns in the barrels and shipped them out. And they shipped them all to Martin Luther, whose job it was to find them wives. Martin Luther was successful on 11 of the 12. But when he came to Catherine von Bora, um, she was um, quite a stubborn lady and quite a strong-willed lady, and he could find no wife for her, so he married her. At first, it was just that, a marriage of necessity. But Luther came to deeply, deeply love his wife and speak very, very highly of marriage. And Luther would come to say of uh, his wife, he would call her Katie, my rib. And he would say that there is no sweeter union than the union of marriage. They would come to have um, six children of their own. And then they adopted another six children uh, who had been orphaned through the, one of, some of the many plagues that swept through Europe at that time. Uh, he lost one of his daughters at eight months old and lost another daughter, Magdalena, when she was 13 years old, who was the apple of his eye, and the grief nearly crushed him and his wife. He was a man who knew the pains and the sorrows of life. Another point that caught my attention of the man like Martin Luther was the output of this man. By all accounts, he was just a tremendous husband and father. He was an exceptional pastor and preacher and counselor and professor. He was a prolific writer. His collected writings in German are over 100 volumes. The abridged English edition is 56 volumes. And he did this all with quill and ink and movable type that took um, hours on end to arrange so that you could um, do a page. Not only did he write books and sermons, but he was known for his hymns. We're going to sing one of Luther's hymns at the end of our service, but um, Luther was one who, along with a few others, reinstituted singing into church. I think you all enjoyed our time of worship as it is an instrument through which we express our emotions toward God. There was a time at which a, an individual was, um, among other things, called a heretic for encouraging his congregation to sing. Luther wrote numerous hymns. He was an accomplished lute player, and he was regarded as one of the most important German composers prior to Bach. He was a gifted man. Luther, though, felt he was never up to the call of God in his life. He reminds me of a man like Moses, who when God called Moses, said, Moses, I want you to go and lead my people out of Egypt into the promised land. Moses came up with one excuse after another excuse after another excuse of why he was not the suitable candidate for God to use to do that task. Luther would write later on in his life, Who would have divined that I would receive a bachelor's and then a master of arts, then lay aside my law student's cap and leave it to others in order to become a monk? And then, despite all this, I would get in the Pope's hair, and he in mine, and take a runaway nun to be my wife. Who would have predicted this 
for me? Yes, who? But God. Because the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, searching for one whose heart is wholly his. Luther also realized that the church's treasure is the gospel. He realized what it meant when Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith that has been once delivered to you all. He understood what Paul meant when he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. Luther said numerous times that the church's treasure is the gospel. Stephen Nichols, another person who's written on Luther, writes, Luther lived in a time when this true treasure had been traded for something far less. As a monk, he stood in a long line of succession that stretched back through the centuries of theologians and churchmen who had heaped up layer upon layer of extra-biblical teaching and practice, obscuring the church's true treasure of the gospel. Like scaffolding that surrounds and hides the beauty of a building, These layers needed to be torn down so that the object that mattered could be seen without hindrance and without obstruction. Luther, with a little help from his friends, tore down the scaffolding, revealing the beauty and the wonder of the gospel for the church once again. One of the greatest discoveries of the Reformation, especially for Martin Luther, is simply this, that the word of God comes to us in the form of a book. In other words, the saving sanctifying, authoritative word of God comes to us in a book. What is new in Luther is the notion of absolute obedience to the scriptures against any authorities, be they popes or councils. Commenting on Psalm 119, Luther wrote, In this psalm, David always says that he will speak, think, talk, hear, read day and night and constantly, but about nothing else than God's word and commandments. For God... Uh, For God wants to give you his spirit only through the external word. Luther would later say with great confidence and clarity a year before he died in 1545, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. This is the only place that you will hear God speak in his word. This conviction led to one of the most memorable accounts in the life of Martin Luther, many of which you are might, might be familiar with, and it happened at the Diet of Worms. Now, this doesn't mean that, that they had to get together for a little while and subsist only on a diet of worms. Um, worms was an actual place, and a diet was a place of debate, or it was a council. So he was going to the city of, uh, of, of Worms in order to uh, have a debate. And so Luther was going there, um, expecting just that, to debate, to talk about his theology, to talk about the things that were ruminating in his heart. But when he got to this particular council, he found that there was a table there, and spread across the table were numerous of his works and his writings that had been collected and put on display there. Pointing to the heap of uh, writings that were on the table, his accusers said to him, if those were his writings, to which Luther said, yes, they are my writings. Then he was asked to recant. Luther said, I need a day to think about this. That day was one of the most difficult days of his life as he wrestled with with Satan, with the devil, and as he wrestled with himself about the proposition that was put before him. The next day, though, Luther came and once again he stood before this impressive gathering of church authorities and civil officials where once again he was asked to recant his writings. Before Luther answered, he apologized to them for some of the harsh tone that had been in some of his writings. 
He distinguished three different categories of his writings so that they understood that that there was differences in what his writings contained. But he said, I cannot reject the majority of them or their teachings. Then he proclaimed this. Since then, your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. What Luther did when he stated that was he expressed the Reformation plank of sola scriptura. That scripture is the final authority for the church. And it alone is the very word of God. Looking back over his early days, Luther said, this is staggering. He said, when I was young... I read the Bible over and over and over again and was so perfectly acquainted with it that I could in an instant have pointed to any verse that might have been mentioned. I said that in the first service and um, a lady walked up to me and says, I just wanted to tell, tell you, Pastor, that my brother, who is 75 years old, has memorized the whole Bible. So this is something that still is done today. He said, I then read the commentators, but soon threw them aside, for I found therein many things my conscience would not approve as being contrary to the sacred text. Tis always better to see with with one's own eyes than with those of other people. He wrote in 1533, for a number of years I have now annually read through the Bible twice. If the Bible were a large, mighty tree and all its words were little branches, I have tapped all the branches, eager to know what was there and what it had to offer. One commented that this had been Luther's practice for at least 10 years or more. And then finally, Luther said this about the Word of God. It is a sin and a shame not to know our own book or to understand the speech and the words of God. Luther fought for the church's treasure, which is the gospel and the authority of the Word of God. The very gate of righteousness or paradise, the righteousness of God. Warren Worsby wrote of Martin Luther that he championed justification by faith. But it wasn't always this way from the start for Martin Luther. He wrestled with the Apostle Paul. What he came to be for him was almost an insurmountable obstacle. How he who was a sinner could ever satisfy the righteous demands of a holy, righteous God. And he realized that there was no way in himself that he could ever live up to what God demanded of him. He could not pay for it. He could not earn it. He could not do enough works. And so he was crushed under the weight of his own sinfulness and of the righteous demands of a holy God. And what he was troubled by was the standard of of others who thought that God's standard of righteousness could be met through good works or by merely racking up enough merits. But Luther knew it wasn't a matter of quantity, but of quality. It's not what I can do, but it's the quality of the righteousness that satisfies the just anger of God towards us. 
he would say, we are not merely sinners because we sin, but we are sinners at the very root of our being. Sin isn't just a matter of what we do, it's a matter of what we are. And nothing we can do, even if, it were to be, even if we were to be considered saints, can overcome that. His conclusion, God is a tyrant. He is a righteous God who demanded of his unrighteous subjects something they could never give. He no longer feared God. He hated God. But that's when Luther wrestled with Romans chapter 1, verse 17. In Romans 1, verse 17, this is a verse that he spent days and days wrestling with, where it says there that for in, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It was up till then, it was that single word, the righteousness of God, that stood in his way. He says, for I hated that word, righteousness. He goes on then to write in the prefaces of one of his works, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that. Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would uh, assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had great yearnings to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and the sheer mercy of God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul now became to me a gate to heaven. In other words, he realized that it was not by his righteousness that he entered into God. It was not by his works that he satisfied the righteousness of God, but it was by faith in the perfect righteousness of Christ that was given to him by God by which he stood righteous before a just God. Luther understood that the righteousness that God demands is not active but passive. In other words, it's not a righteousness that we earn. It's a righteousness that is earned for us in Christ Jesus. Loved ones, if you are here today and you have been trying to be good before God, you will never achieve it. The only way you will be accepted before God is to admit your unrighteousness and put your faith in the righteousness of Christ and God will accept you. Finally, finishing the race, a battle to the end. Elisha once said to his trembling servant Gehazi, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. As I have been reading Luther these last three weeks or so, I've been struck by the intensity of the battle that that man found himself in. He faced an incredible physical battle, and I'll make just a few comments about that in a moment. He faced an incredible theological battle. He faced an incredible battle with other human beings. And he faced an incredible battle with Satan himself and the the forces of darkness. His life was in the context of this battle. 
And yet he understood that those who were with him were greater than those who were against him. Amidst his intense spiritual struggles, Luther struggled from constipation. One bout lasting for six months. He also endured headaches, buzzing in the ears, tightness of chest, gout, kidney stones, and a shin infection that was kept open by a tube that was put in it so that the pus would drain out. He was also plagued and suffered from depression on a regular basis, which plagued him even more because he was a pastor and a counselor of his people, and he thought, how can I suffer with this, and I, how can I help my people as I'm in this? Luther knew, not far off um, before he died, that he was going to die. He had a great sense of humor, Luther, and he quipped, when I get home to Wittenberg again, I will lie down in my coffin and give the worms a fat doctor to feast on. Luther died at 3 a.m. On, on February the 18th, 1546. Even in death, Luther was plagued by the battle. He had always hoped that he could just have a peaceful death, that he could have some solitude and some quiet as he slipped from this world into the presence of the God that he so loved. But he was not even allowed that gift. As he died, as he was dying, he was surrounded by both opponents and by enemies who were marking every word that he said, noting every nuance of every um, thing that he uttered in order to use it for or against him. In his most personal hour, just before he died, one asked, Reverend Father, will you die steadfast in Christ in the doctrines you have preached? Yes, he said. So it's fitting that we remember Martin Luther today. But not for his legacy, but for the Savior that he lived for. The Savior that he gave his life for. And while we remember what happened in the past, Luther reminds us also to focus on the present and the needs that we now, as a new people, in a new age, in a new century, fight for. To remember that it is the word of God alone that will break through the noise and the static and the blindness of our world. The gospel broke through to the hard-hearted monk bent on getting to heaven through his own efforts. It broke through in a place and a time in history where the church had lost its way. And even in the darkest places with the darkest of human hearts, the gospel dispels the darkness. Luther was also never selfish with the gospel. He once says, what does it amount to, he asks, that we have the gospel in this little corner? Just reckon that there is no gospel in Asia or Africa, and that the gospel isn't preached in many parts of Europe, in Greece, in Italy, in Hungary, Spain, France, England, and Poland. In other words, not only should we be steadfast with the gospel, but we must be unselfish with it as well. We remember Luther best when we proclaim Christ and the gospel to the world which has such great need.